All right, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13 this morning. And we are going to be looking pretty much at verses 13 through 18 today as we continue our look at the false prophet. title of our message this morning is the false prophet part two. And so again, we are in one of the more fascinating parts really of the entire book of Revelation, I think anyway, that that we are getting such detailed information about this future uh, tribulation period that it's really quite astounding, the, the level of detail. If we take the words on the page for just their plain meaning, we really, it's inescapable that, we, that there are going to be two people in the future who are going to rule over the entire earth, a kingdom of man's making, which is very different from the kingdom that we will experience as believers on this earth that is a kingdom of the Lord's making. Uh, and so as we get into this uh, chapter, again, it's, it's important for us to realize uh, that this is the direction that the world is heading in. We've seen that the world is going to worship uh, a man and that the world is going to come under the grips of a false religion. And uh, I don't think you need to be a uh, theologian or be a person who spends all of your time studying current events to know that, yeah, this is the direction we are headed. The world is coalescing around uh, not God, but unfortunately anti-God. And that's precisely what the book of Revelation uh, describes here. That's why uh, my prayer earlier was that, that we would take away from the book of Revelation things that are relevant for us today, even though this is speaking about the future. And as uh, classical dispensationalists, we believe that the rapture of the church will happen before these events take place. But nevertheless, we see the world headed towards exactly uh, what is being described here in Revelation. And so that should recage our thinking to understand the direction of the world is exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do as his church. So that can inform uh, things that we should be doing in the church and hint, hint, we shouldn't be about making a kingdom <laughs> because the next kingdom that's going to come to this earth is the kingdom of this antichrist. And so in our study, we find ourselves in one of those intermission periods uh, in the narrative of describing events that will take place sequentially. We've seen that in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And, and in between these uh, series of judgments, bowls will be next. The, the Lord takes a break and gives us more information about things that are happening. That's where we find ourselves in our study here of this seven-year tribulation period that the majority of the book of Revelation is about, all the way from chapter 6 
through the end of chapter 19, when the Lord comes again, we have uh, all of this information concerning this tribulation period that is coming to the earth. And we still have uh, the copies of our outline here of this, uh, the tribulation period in Revelation. It begins with the seal judgments in chapter 6. And then there's an intermission that describes the two witnesses, or I'm sorry, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and their uh, ministry. And then the seal judgments in chapters 8, man, trumpet judgments in chapters uh, 8 and 9 in this second intermission that we find ourselves in here in chapter 13, where we see the two main principles that are going to be used by Satan to wage war against Christ and his believers. The Antichrist in the first 10 verses, and then the false prophet that we're studying today in verses 11 through 18, where of course we get more information about this coming world ruler who we don't know what his name is, but we oftentimes just refer to him as the Antichrist because he is uh, shown to be in not just Revelation chapter 13, but several other places in the Bible we've seen. The Bible actually spends quite a bit of time talking about this future world ruler uh, as a warning to us. You know, it's one of... It's been said, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, that Satan's best trick is to try to convince people that he doesn't exist. Well, he does the same thing with the Antichrist. Uh, one of his best uh, disguises, so to speak, would be to say, oh, he doesn't really exist. This is just metaphorical for evil in general, or it's just, it's talking about the Roman Empire, uh, way in the past, we, you know, we really don't have to worry about any of this. Well, in order to do that, we kind of has, have to disregard the meaning of words, <laughs> the meaning of Scripture, the plain meaning. And when we interpret Revelation 13 with just regular rules of grammar, we come away with some of these uh, things about who he's going to be. This has to be talking about a literal person who has never existed and so therefore will exist in the future. He comes out of the sea in this vision, so, uh, implying that he will come from the Gentile nations. Uh, we saw that perhaps he could be Jewish. We don't really take that away from what we see in Revelation 13. You have to go to the book of Daniel that also talks about this same person to come away with uh, this idea that he may be Jewish coming from a Gentile nation, Daniel 11:37. Uh, he is the personification of this coming kingdom. The, the coming one world government, one world uh, one worldism is wrapped up in this person of the Antichrist, just like the coming messianic kingdom is personified in Jesus Christ. He is the kingdom, and the kingdom is Jesus Christ, the messianic kingdom. Satan is doing his best to parody uh, God in what he is doing. So, 
the Antichrist is described very much the same way as this coming world kingdom is described here in in Revelation with a beast coming out of the sea, having these horns and seven heads and, and this description that's very similar to the kingdom, that's very similar to a description of Satan. They're all wrapped up together in this idea. Uh, and he is, this Antichrist will be empowered by Satan, uh, perhaps even indwelt by Satan himself. And we saw that he received some sort of fatal wound. It's called a wound from the sword uh, later in Revelation 13. And this wound is healed. We looked at some of the various uh, theories about what that means. Is this just describing a, an empire like Rome, for example, that fell and now it's revived? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> the, the plain meaning of the words, however, indicate that this person, this antichrist, is going to receive some sort of wound that normally kills a person, but yet he's going to live. He's going to be revived or resuscitated. Uh, some, a lot of scholars hesitate to use that word resurrected uh, for some reason. Uh, I think that the language is very clear that this person is going to die and he's going to come back to life, and then the world is going to worship him as God. That kind of makes sense with, with the language that, they see, that we see here, that he's going to receive a fatal wound, die, come to life, be resuscitated, however you want to put it, miraculously, and then he's going to rule over a world kingdom with people uh, essentially flocking to worship him. And this uh, reign is going to be three and a half years. We see that in several places in the Bible. Uh, three and a half years, time, times, and a half a time, sometimes described as 1260 days. The last half of this tribulation period is going to see the Antichrist ruling over the entire world and having the entire world worship him. Unbelievers of course. And he's going to be very arrogant and blasphemous. He's going to set himself up as God. And we saw that it's going to take perseverance for the believers to survive during this time, uh, physically, to make it to the end. They're going to have to have great endurance. This doesn't say anything about their uh, eternal destiny, this word perseverance. And it, it really doesn't have anything to do with whether they end up uh, in heaven or whether they end up in hell. We can scratch that from our, from our thinking. That's not what it means. It means it's going to take physical, emotional, and spiritual perseverance in order to physically live to the end of this tribulation period because the persecution is going to be so intense. Their eternal destiny is settled on one circumstance, whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as, as the one who died for their sins. They will then have, if they do that, they will have his righteousness uh, imputed to them or given to them, credited to them the same way that you and I do. And then we are called on to 
uh, persevere in the faith. God wants us to be conformed to his image and live for him uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we can call that perseverance. But we don't do that in order to uh, continue in salvation or to uh, earn our salvation, keep our salvation, because our salvation, our eternal destiny is completely, utterly, totally wrapped up in Jesus Christ. We are kept saved through what he has done, certainly not through what I do. And I don't know about you, but praise the Lord for that, that I am not keeping myself saved. He did all the work. I simply rest, trust in what he did. And as I walk by the means of the Spirit, I can be pleasing to the Lord. As I turn to my own uh, devices, my own uh, flesh, I will not be pleasing to the Lord. But, praise the Lord, I can return to Him, ask Him for forgiveness, and be restored to fellowship with Him and continue to walk with Him. That is, that is the true... Uh, perseverance of the saints, if you will. And these believers in the future will have to do the same thing in order to physically survive this tribulation period. Next, we moved on to this, to the false prophet, the second beast or another beast coming up out of the earth we saw last time. And if we are consistent in our interpretation of this metaphorical language or this figurative language, then we would conclude that since this second beast comes up out of the earth, that he probably is Jewish, uh, most likely. Uh, there will be some pushback from scholars like uh, John Wolverd, for example, somebody as far as uh, prophecy and dispensationalism goes and these kinds of things. Uh, we would agree with 99% of what John Wolverd says here uh, in that regard. However, he says that, that, the, that you're reading too much into the passage to conclude that the false prophet or the second beast is uh, Jewish. However, he's very, uh, I personally would say that he's very inconsistent in his interpretation of the symbology. He agrees that the first beast, the Antichrist, is a Gentile because the beast, the first beast is pictured as coming out of the sea. The second, and that makes him a Gentile. Revelation 17, the Bible's pretty consistent. The sea represents Gentile people. Uh, now then, when it comes to the false prophet, he comes out of the land. He says, oh no, that means that he's earthly instead of heavenly. Well, that's uh, okay. <laughs> you can believe that if you would like, but that's kind of switching the way that we're interpreting the symbols right in the midst of the symbology. And that's not, that's not a consistent uh, way to interpret. If the first beast coming out of the sea is a Gentile, the second beast coming out of the land, yeah, that's probably a good indication that he's Jewish because the land or the earth 
is uh, when it's used symbolically, it is representative of Israel, the Jewish people. And, uh, well, we'll just leave it there. Uh, this false prophet we also saw has two horns. We'll see some more of that today, that, that he does have some kind of authority in the world, horns being representative of authority. He's also a lamb who speaks like a lion. He's going to come with this. Uh, it's pretty clear that he's going to come and unite the world in some sort of religion before the world, before he turns the world to uh, worshiping the Antichrist and Satan. He's going to unite the world in some way, in some kind of one world religion, if you will. And we see that described, we'll get there in Revelation 17, the woman riding upon the beast is representative of this coming one world religion. But we also saw last time that the, that the false prophet and antichrist are going to tear down this false religion. And I believe that's going to take place around the midpoint of the tribulation. And it's going to turn from this uh, kind of, well, if it, if it happens in the next few years, I think we're pretty sure what this one world religion is going to look like. It's going to look like the coexist bumper sticker. We're just going to find common ground with everybody. Uh, and this is what we're going to uh, unite around the lowest common denominator, literally, instead of the truth. What we ought to be unifying around is the truth of God's word. Instead, this religion will unify around uh, unity and, and make a, a religion out of it. We definitely see this kind of spirit in the world today. And it's also mentioned here in Revelation 13 that this second beast is going to speak like a dragon. So if you don't go along with the touchy-feely unity, oh, we just love everybody, uh, we're going to cut your head off. <laughs> it's essentially what it's going to come to, and you kind of see that sort of a spirit uh, rising up in the world today. We also see that this Antichrist, or that the second beast, the false prophet, is going to exercise the authority of the Antichrist on his behalf. He's going to be really the right-hand man, the kind of the power, if you will, behind the scenes of a lot of what the Antichrist wants to uh, accomplish in this world. And so today, we'll look again at some of the deception that he's going to employ. This incredible directive that he's uh, also going to have. And then uh, one of the more mysterious parts of the book of Revelation, the digits or the number 666. So what does that actually mean? We'll get to that today. We begin with the deception that this false prophet is going to use in order to bring the world to worship the Antichrist and Satan himself. Revelation 13 and verse 13 says, He, this second beast, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast 
telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is the great deception that the false prophet is going to head up during this tribulation period. He's going to call what or perform what Revelation calls great signs. And that, that kind of language is uh, indicative of miracles. He is going to be performing actual miracles. And we looked at some of this uh, last week. But this is exactly what Jesus himself uh, proclaimed in the Olivet Discourse in describing, largely describing, the future tribulation period there in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Jesus warned about this. Matthew 24, 4. In fact, it's one of the first things that he says in relation to, you know, what's it going to be like immediately before your kingdom comes? Well, let me tell you. Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. There's going to be an incredible spirit of deception during this tribulation period and leading up into this tribulation period. I'm not sure if you pay much attention to uh, what goes on in churches or places of worship outside of here, but there's a lot of deception (laughs) that's going on even today, unfortunately. Later, Jesus says this in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. And as we were learning in Sunday school this morning, that term for the elect there uh, is referring to Israel. The Israelites are going to be misled in large numbers concerning this false prophet and the miracles that he is going to perform. And we looked at the fact that these are uh, miracles that are better than the Egyptian magicians last time. They were just kind of using tricks and whatever it was to do the things that they were doing, well, that's not really what's happening here. We're calling down fire. The, uh, the false prophet, not we, <laughs> uh, but the false prophet is calling down fire. This similar to the way that happened during Elijah's time. Although uh, in those passages with Elijah, 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 1, it's the Lord who's sending it. Elijah's calling for it. The Lord is sending the fire. Here, Uh, it would seem that the false prophet is somehow able to make fire come down from heaven. And and John, in his writing, uh, was familiar with that. We saw Luke 9, uh, verses 51 through 54 last time, uh, that he wanted to call fire down on the enemies of God. Uh, So he knew what he was talking about in this Regard And this false prophet is going to be able to do this. So what, our takeaway today 
These are actual miracles. And uh, for us, application today is, is to understand that not all miracles come from God. Uh, the, the miracles that happen in the Bible are very sparse. Uh, you know, Abraham didn't perform any miracles, for example. Uh, Noah, uh, yeah, Daniel, some of these really great names, the, the biggest names in the Bible uh, didn't perform miracles. They're, they're sparse and they're done for specific purposes to, uh, and not just to only propagate the truth, but at specific times for God's specific purpose, he allows miracles to take place in order to reinforce uh, the truth. So when we see uh, miracles taking place today, you know, it's really hard to argue, like I mentioned last week, with people's personal experiences. But I would just warn us to be cautious because, again, not all miracles come from God. Just because we perhaps see a miracle, it doesn't mean that it came from God. We don't need the truth reinforced because we have it right here in our Bibles. The, the New Testament uh, miracles were done at a time when yeah, they didn't have, this was a new dispensation, a new thing is happening and the miracles reinforced the truth of what was being said. Now we have the Bible to back us up as we uh, are proclaiming the truth. So we don't really need a miracle today. Furthermore, uh, we see that these that the, the earth dwellers here at this time are being deceived by these miracles because they're walking by sight and not by faith. We could kind of do the same thing today that, well, we see this miracle. Well, yeah, okay, that's fine, but we're not necessarily walking by faith as we do that. We're walking more by the things that we see instead of walking by faith as Paul uh, desires for the Corinthians to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, last time. Furthermore, these people, these earth dwellers, as they are referred to, the earth dwellers being kind of a term that refers to unbelievers during the tribulation period, uh, because they are very earthly. They have their eyes on the things of the earth rather than the things of heaven and the things of God. They clearly disregard obvious signs that came from God. And we can back that up with Scripture, that they know that these the seal judgments, for example, are happening. They are coming from God, and they know this, and they don't care. They, they do not uh, the book of Revelation says they know this and they do not repent of the, the, their, the things that they are doing that are against God. They have no desire to change their mind about those things. In fact, they want to stay in those uh, various things regardless of the fact that they are being directly punished because of them during the tribulation period. And this is because they did not believe. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 
you can turn there if you have your Bible, is very clear about that. 2 Thessalonians 2, a chapter where that we studied, of course, in our study of First and Second Thessalonians. We looked at this in some detail, so we won't spend a tremendous amount of time on it. But why are they being deceived? It's because they did not believe. They did not receive the truth. And so they are very open to error. And I believe that Paul, part of the reason why he's writing this letter is to remind the Thessalonians of the truth that he had already given them. See, they, they must have received some sort of letter that led them to believe, whether it was a forgery or something along those lines, that they were led to believe that it was from Paul and was telling them that they're essentially living in the tribulation period today. They were facing some sort of persecution, and so they're, they're living in the tribulation period is what they were led to believe by this letter. Paul writes them to tell them, hey, don't you remember I was telling you these things? And keep in mind, Thessalon- the, the church in Thessalonica was very new at this point in time, probably around six months old or so. And Paul is already telling them about the Antichrist, the tribulation period, some of these things. Don't let anybody tell you that, that uh, prophecy isn't for new Christians. Of course it's for new Christians. Uh, I won't go into my personal experience, but Revelation was actually one of the first books that I read as a, as a new Christian. And I... I loved it. I ate it up. It was fantastic. Uh, And I'm sure the Thessalonians, could you imagine being taught by Paul as your teacher about the future and about anything? That would have been pretty special. Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See, Paul is very concerned with their, uh, with their state of mind, if you will, with their composure. And he doesn't want them to be disturbed. That's why we study these things. We're going to get to this uh, shortly here in our next point things that are going on in this world, we need to not be shaken. We need to not be lose our composure or be disturbed in our spirit, thinking that we are living in the tribulation. That's why we know. That's why we study these things and know what's going to happen. Then we know it's not happening now. We can stay calm, stay cool, continue to give people the truth of salvation through faith in Christ. We can encourage other believers to, hey, carry on, man, go back to the Word, uh, rest in the Word, and continue living for Him. We're not in the tribulation period. Paul says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy the, the falling away, the big one, like the Ohio State. I saw Ohio State tried to patent the word the, I think. And I think they, I think they did they win? You, you would know that stuff, Mike. I think they did, but I'm not, I'm not sure. 
the apostasy, like the big one, the one that is noted to be the apostasy. We're not talking about uh, something in the past. This is big, the big one, the big falling away. Like when the nation of Israel believes in a false Messiah. I think we could probably classify that as the apostasy, the big one. Personally, probably maybe even bigger than rejecting him when he was here the first time, believing in a different one. That could class, uh, be classified as the apostasy. Unless that comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, abomination of desolation, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? These things will happen during the tribulation period. If you don't see that, if that hasn't happened, you're not in the tribulation Don't be disturbed. Don't lose your composure. And you know what restrains him now. They know because Paul already told them that. So he doesn't tell them exactly what that is in this letter because he already spent time describing it to them. We have to kind of do some investigative work in order to find out what that is. And in our study, we did that work and came away with this restraining influence is the church, the Holy Spirit working through the church today. Uh, Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So at the end of the tribulation, when the Lord comes again, he will uh, slay this antichrist and bring bring his rule and reign to an end. Verse nine, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness, For those who perish, notice this, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's why these people are being deceived because they did not believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they, uh, as we have seen, have an awful lot of opportunities to do that. 144,000 Jewish witnesses uh, purposefully sealed by the Lord himself sent out into the world to witness for him. We spend a lot of time uh, talking about the judgments and the Uh, the horrible things that are going to happen, the absolute evil that is going to be going on in the world during this time. But there are also 144,000 witnesses, 144,000 Pauls and the 12 apostles, people like that. Not that they're going to be apostles, but people like that going out throughout the world, doing things like we see in the book of Acts throughout the entire world and an incredible multitude of people 
are going to believe and be saved according to what we've seen in Revelation. However, there's also a large number of people who will not believe. The overwhelming majority probably of people are not going to believe and this is why they believe in the deceptive works of the Antichrist because they did not believe. Uh, For this reason, because they didn't believe, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. It says it there three times. They're deceived because they did not believe. They refused to believe. And this spirit of deception, as Paul points out, is in the world today. We too can be deceived. And uh, even as believers, of course, we can be deceived. We can refuse to believe the reality of uh, many things about what God says. And what God says is the reality. You can apply that to your own personal life however you would like. I'll allow the Holy Spirit to do that for you. But when he talks about uh, sexual relationships, for example, and these kinds of things, God's standard is the reality. And we can, in our minds, choose to not believe in the reality if we want to. We can refuse to believe what God says and go off and do our own thing, and we're going to reap the consequences of those very bad decisions at some point in time. You will reap what you have sown, uh, unfortunately for us. But praise the Lord, God is a God of grace, and he gives us his word, so that we can uh, walk in his word. And although the spirit of deception is in the world today, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So as a believer, we have Jesus Christ inside of us. He has overcome the world for us. And in this same letter, John says that we can go to him and ask for, for forgiveness. When we've decided to disregard God's reality, we can turn and uh, go to Christ for forgiveness and he will surely forgive us. Uh, We are, Paul implores the Colossians to not be taken captive by this deception that is in the world. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
And we can avoid this deception, of course, through the word. That's the whole point of really the church in a nutshell is wrapped up in Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 14 in the teaching of the word so that we aren't deceived by this spirit that is in the world today. We're not tossed here and there by everything that comes down the pike. Rather, we are uh, composed. We're not disturbed. We're settled in God and in his word. And we're standing on the rock of his word. But this, this spirit of deception, if we think it's bad now in the world today, uh, with the many wolves in sheep's clothing that we don't have to look too uh, far to see. You haven't seen anything compared to what's going to happen in the future. The second part of verse 14, uh, not only is he going to perform these incredible signs, but he's going to tell those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life Verse 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is going to be some sort of incredible uh, deception that he is going to give. Uh, pneuma is the Greek term there. In verse 15, it was given to him to give pneuma, that is uh, breath, spirit, sometimes used to uh, translate it as life to the image. He's going to have the world, this false prophet is going to have the world build some sort of image, some sort of idol to the Antichrist because he has been raised from the dead at least at the very least in their minds, the people of the world think that this Antichrist is killed and has come back to life and the false prophet leads the world, directs the world to make an image of this beast and then the false prophet is going to give spirit, breath, life, something along those lines to this image so that it can even speak. And then the second part of this is there's some, I wouldn't call it controversy, but kind of hard to uh, interpret exactly what's going on, that clearly the image is going to be able to speak. And then there's some discrepancy about who's actually causing people to be killed who don't worship the image. Is it the image itself? That's kind of what the language says, that the image is going to be commanding that people who do not worship the image are put to death. Or uh, is it the false prophet who is commanding people to be put to death who do not worship the image? Whichever way it is, the language probably points towards... Uh, the, the image itself is the, the thing that is commanding people to be put to death. These are uh, some of the most profound events of this future tribulation that are taking place. Uh, Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, 15, he calls this the abomination of desolation. 
that Daniel spoke of. So Daniel speaks of this. Matthew speaks of this. And I think this uh, Revelation 13 is giving us really the, the, the full picture of what this abomination of desolation is going to be, a literal image of the Antichrist that is somehow uh, brought to life and is at least able to speak, if not able to uh, command people to be put to death if they do not worship this image. Now, if we talked about this even 20 or 30 years ago, we would think, oh man, that's kind of, uh, that's even, that's hard to even imagine. But if you pay attention to technology and these kinds of things that are going in, going on in the world today, yeah, it's not really as far-fetched as it may have seemed. Uh, as you know, the, according to the language, this image is coming to life, and it's able to talk, and it's able to think. And so, is the question arises then: Is John describing things that he's seeing, but in his first-century mind, he has no idea? Uh, what's actually taking place. So he sees an image that starts to talk and now it's commanding people to be killed if they don't worship it. Or is it physically coming to life? Or is it some kind of uh, sentient robot or something along these lines that is entirely possible in the world uh, today, a, a scientist from Google, actually, he's been fired because he went public about one of these AI machines that they've uh, created that seem to have feelings by its responses to some of the questions. Interesting. There was a whole movie made about something similar to this, 2001 Space Odyssey. I don't know if you've seen that. It's kind of weird, but a uh, computer sort of takes over. Uh, and starts controlling things totally not out of the realm of possibility that it's something along those lines, or it's just a genuine miracle and this image is coming to life. That's what the language would tell us. And that people are being put to death who do not worship this image. And it's worth repeating that not everybody worships the image uh, uh, people will die who do not. Uh, we've seen uh, Revelation 15, 2, we'll see people who uh, overcame this image. Uh, but it's important also for us to remember that these people are being deceived and they are not, uh, they are worshiping this image not because they just can't help it and that there's, there's no other choice for them. They absolutely have a choice and they're making a choice to uh, worship this image because they have not believed. The world, the earth dwellers, are going to believe in this deception knowing precisely who is behind it and who is doing it. Satan himself, they are turning from God to literally worship Satan. Like we've mentioned before uh, in the past, why, why 
Are people doing these things that we are seeing going on in the world today, some of these things that are so vile and uh, anti-God? Well, they're doing it because they hate God. They hate his word. And it's, it's only going to get worse. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's only going to get worse in this world. So much so that this this false prophet is going to give this incredible directive that we see in verse 16 of Revelation 13. It says, And he, the second beast or the false prophet, causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this worship of the beast is is going to take on a whole new level, unlike anything that we have seen in the world uh, today in the past. So obviously this is something in the future. This is full-on worship of Satan and his man, the Antichrist. And the language is very clear there in verse 16. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves. This is a figure of speech that's known as a merism. Uh, When he says the small and the great, he means the small and the great and everyone in between, the rich and the poor, the middle class, the lower middle class, the upper middle class, the and everybody in between is included there. Free and slaves and everybody in between. This is uh, a figure of speech that is used often in the Bible. In fact, it's in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. Uh, I saw a video of uh, a well-known comic making fun of Genesis 1-1 this morning and, and as an old recording and I was still kind of backing away, uh, waiting for the lightning to strike as he was making fun of this. Don't let anyone do that to you. Uh, make fun of the Bible and the, the creation account. Genesis 1-1 is simply the opening statement, kind of clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he was making fun by saying, oh, God created everything in the dark. And then he made the light. Oh, look how great it is. Uh, it was kind of funny, but that's just kind of ignoring the language that, that is there, the opening statement, God created everything. And now let me tell you how he did it. Back to Revelation. He, uh, this false prophet requires everyone in the world to receive this mark. Believers, of course, are not going to take the mark. Somehow they are going to be able to avoid this. All the verses that we've talked about, they have victory over the beast. They do not take the mark. It's even uh, described as all those who do take the mark are condemned. He directs that this false prophet directs all to receive a mark. Let's spend some time 
on that one because this is something that is becoming more and more prevalent in the world today. It seems like uh, with every turn of the calendar, some something else comes along uh, that it could be the mark. You know, it was uh, credit cards. It was uh, you know, the next thing is the microchips and now the vaccine and all of these various things. Let's look at this word mark for a little bit. The false prophet directs all to receive a mark. Karagma is the Greek word that is used there for, that is translated in our English Bibles as mark. And the BDAG, the, our uh, Greek lexicon, the most uh, used Greek lexicon anyway, defines the word mark or karagma as a mark that is engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted. That's what the term means. Now, why in the world did we read Acts chapter 17 for our scripture reading? Well, uh, regardless, it is a wonderful passage, and I love Paul's sermon on Mars Hill because it's so applicable to us today. Uh, people worshiping everything under the sun except God. <laughs> and Paul has a great message for them. That is actually the only other place outside of the book of Revelation in the New Testament that uses this term karagma. That is, so when uh, the BDAG defines this word, they kind of have to go use a lot of things outside of scripture to define what the word is. And that's that's fine. That's fine to do. We, we, uh, not every word in the Bible is a theological word that's only found in the Bible, of course. And so what did, Paul, or what did John mean when he wrote karagma? Well, the only uh, place we can go within the Bible to see what it could possibly be is Acts 17, 29, where Paul is saying, that you have these images here, these stones, these things that you chipped out, you etched, you made with your own hands. Karagma is the term that he uses there. And we as children of God, bearing the image of God, his image is not like those things that you made with your hands. That's why we read Acts chapter 17. The image of God is not a karagma. It is not something that is made with human hands etched into us. The image of God is, is uh, something other than God made, uh, uh, man made. So this mark that the false prophet is dictating for people to take is something that is made by human hands. The same term is used to describe idols chipped out of stone. It's a mark that is engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted onto these people who take it worshiping uh, the first beast. That's why they are taking it. And notice that uh, there in verse 17, that this mark, this etching, this branding or cutting or imprinting is 
on the right hand or the forehead, and it is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Very, very specific language describing what this mark is, and we can take away from that what it is not. The mark is a mark that is engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted, and it is the name of the beast or the number of his name, period. And he provides, verse 17, the, the second beast provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark. Again, either the name of the beast or the number of his name, cut, etched, mark, imprinted on your right hand or on your forehead. So this false prophet, obviously, he's not just a religious leader. He has some sort of control over the world economy. He can make decisions about what, who is able to buy and who is able to sell. So that goes along with his two horns. He has a religious sort of horn and he has an economic sort of horn also. And he determines that no one can buy or sell without the mark. The engraving, the etching, branding, cutting, imprinting, of the name of the beast or the number of his name. If you don't have that, you can't buy or sell. Somehow, obviously, believers are going to be able to uh, survive during this period of time. How are they able to do that? I'm not sure. Maybe they have their black market uh, Amazon account. They can go on their secret phone and have stuff delivered to their house. I'm not sure. Uh, perhaps they'll be able to uh, use the food that's in my house. We've got a lot of extra food. <laughs> uh, if you're out there listening to this after the rapture, I'm not going to tell you my address, but uh, if you d some empty houses, you might be able to find some food in there. Uh, so what can we take away from this? for us today. I made this slide. It's sort of, I hesitated to make it, but I did it anyway. We can have two columns here. What is the mark? The mark is a physical mark. That's just based on the language that is written down here. So, uh, well, we'll leave it at that for, for now. It is a physical mark that is on the right hand of the person or on their forehead. That's what the language says. You're taking this mark on your right hand or your forehead. It's either a number that we haven't gotten to yet, or it is the name of the beast. Those are the only two options that are described. The mark is either the name or the number of the beast, and it is a sign of worship of the beast. That's why people are taking it. They're not taking it for uh, 
to get a job. They're taking it as a sign that they are worshiping the beast. And we've seen it as a requirement to buy or to sell. Uh, And it is also, we see very clearly here, in the tribulation period. Period. There is no mark of the beast outside of the tribulation period and probably outside of the second half of the tribulation period. There is no such thing as the mark of the beast until that future time. So what the mark is not. A lot of scholars will equate the mark of the beast with the sealing of the 144 thousand that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7. And now that sealing that happens to those people, it's a different word. Notice, kerygma, it's only used uh, about seven times or so in the New Testament. It is all in connection, either our Acts 17 or in connection with the mark of the beast, not the same word as what is used for the 144,000. That's uh, sphragizo, I believe is the Greek term. That could be a, a uh, marking or some sort of sealing that is spiritual that is not seen. It could be seen. It may not be seen. Mark, kerygma is seen. It is a physical mark on these people. Different from the ceiling of the 144,000. It is not an ID card. If your work requires you to have an ID card with a microchip so they know where you are and when you sign in and whether you're at work when you say you're at work, that's not the mark of the beast. That's an ID card that your employer is requiring you to have. It's not a credit card. Uh, the, there's an indication Uh, This is probably going to be some sort of cashless society that is going on. Uh, Yeah, we see the world is obviously moving towards a cashless society. Uh, In my job traveling around, there's all kinds of places around the country that do not take cash anymore, only credit cards. Uh, That is not the mark of the beast. A credit card that you carry in your wallet or your purse is not on your right hand or on your forehead. That's not the mark of the beast. It's not even a microchip. Every once in a while, you'll see uh, uh, news articles about some place in Sweden that's requiring their employees to take a microchip so that they can get into the building. That's not the mark of the beast. The mark kerygma, etching, imprint, mark, brand, not a microchip under the skin. Do I recommend getting microchips? Uh, Probably not. I'm not sure how healthy they are for us, but that's not the mark of the beast. A phone app. If you've been keeping up with Sri Lanka, you know they're in total meltdown. You think things are bad here in America? Read about Sri Lanka. It'll make you feel good (laughs) about our uh, $4 gas prices. Uh, they're requiring a phone app with a QR code in order to buy gas in Sri Lanka. That is not the mark of the beast. How can you say that? How could you possibly say that's not the mark of the beast? Because it's a phone app, and it's not a mark, a branding, an etching, 
something that's going on your right hand or your forehead. And last but not least, it is not a vaccine. It is not the COVID-19 vaccine is not, I say again, is not the mark of the beast. How can I be so sure? Because you don't take the vaccine on your right hand or in your forehead. It doesn't leave a permanent mark. It, it's not the name or the number of the beast. And you're not taking the COVID-19 vaccine. It, maybe some people are taking it to worship Satan and the Antichrist. But that's not what its purpose is. The COVID-19 vaccine is not the mark of the beast. So, now that we have some of the specifics about what the mark is and what the mark is not, we can talk about things that are happening in the world today. There is absolutely, positively, no doubt, there should not be any doubt in anyone's mind that this world is on a freight train headed towards what we are reading about in the book of Revolution, uh, Revelation. We are being conditioned for the control that will take place during this tribulation period. So, with that in mind, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? No, 100% no. Is it conditioning for people to take a mark on their right hand or their forehead so that they will be able to buy, sell, be employed, live and move in this world? Yes. Is needing a QR code on your phone to buy gas down at the corner store the mark of the beast? No. Is it conditioning people to go over this hurdle in order to buy and sell in the world? Absolutely. Is a microchip under your skin required by your employer, the mark of the beast? No. Is it conditioning you to be able to, or to be a little uh, more likely to take the mark of the beast? Sure it is. Is the cashless society mean that we're living in the tribulation today? No. But is it setting the stage for what we're going to see here? Absolute control and knowledge over every single thing that you buy and sell? Absolutely. Of course it is. The mark of the beast is something that we've seen here that is very specific. It is an extremely specific circumstance of the tribulation period that's most likely going to happen in the second half of the tribulation period. And we're not living in that tribulation period. So when something like this comes up, you know, uh, is this credit card the mark of the beast? Well, I don't have to make that determination. I don't have to, I don't have to make that decision. I already know that it's not. Is this vaccine the mark of the beast? Well, I already know the answer to that question. No, it is not. Am I going to be condemned to hell for eternity for taking this uh, vaccine? No, no, I'm not. Because 
I have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And this vaccine, this ID card, this microchip is not the mark of the beast. So we can keep our composure. We cannot be disturbed and we can continue living for the Lord. And so we'll get to the digits. We'll do it quickly because I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't really know what it means. <laughs> there you go. Revelation thirteen eighteen. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because they're going to be taking this mark uh, it can either be the number or his name. So John is telling you what it's going to be for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. And there's one, uh, just to add some confusion to the matter, there's one uh, manuscript that says 616. Uh, but we'll get to that. Here is wisdom, Sophia, the application of knowledge. So he's giving these people some knowledge uh, this is, the, if there is one part of the book of Revelation that is specifically written for tribulation believers, this is it. Uh, you will know who the Antichrist is by applying this knowledge that John is giving you right here. It, it is possible to understand uh, what this means. And those who have understanding can calculate. That is actually an imperative. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So when, it, when the restraining influence is removed and this person comes on to the scene, uh, you will be able to calculate the number of his name and know precisely who this person is. That's what the, the language is describing there. Tribulation people are going to know this. Knowledge uh, is going to increase increase at this time. Daniel 12.10, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. They will know what's going on because they're going to apply this Sophia, this wisdom, this knowledge applied from Revelation, and they'll know who this person is and some sort of calculation is required to do this. And so uh, we can look back at history and these kinds of things and know that uh, people used to do this. That it's, a, it's a process called gematria where numbers or letters are represented, represented by numbers if I said that the right way, letters have a representative number. So you could calculate the, you could take the letters of a person's name, apply the appropriate numbers to them, come up with a number. And when you do that for this person in the future, it will add up to 666. This is Gematria, again, is the term, a process wherein letters are representative of numbers. So, and it depends on what language you use, of course, as well. Somehow, these people in the tribulation period are going to know this. And it's a, a rather complex process that you can uh, look into if you would like. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm definitely not an expert at it. But it is the number of a man 
a man, that A is in bold, if you can't see that from where you are, indicating it is, this is for a specific person. One person can have this number. Uh, this number is representative of one person, and it's the Antichrist. His number is 666. And this idea of gematria or applying numbers to the letters of his name is the most likely uh, explanation for how you come up with this number 666. And of course, there are uh, many theories about who this person has been. Uh, if you, you know, jumble the letters and come up with just the right title, it can be Rome. Uh, well, not really, because it's obviously representative of a person. Uh, some people have applied it to Nero uh, and won't go into all the details, uh, but if you call him Caesar Nero, it can add up to 666, but his name isn't Cira, uh, Nier, Caesar Nero, it's Nero. Uh, Caligula can, could possibly be that. If you used uh, Latin and added an extra letter, it could, be, could have been Caligula. That doesn't work. Uh, somebody even figured out a way that it could be Latin, uh, the word Latin implying it's describing Rome. None of that really fits with the idea that clearly this is a future person who is being described here. This is for these tribulation saints to know who the Antichrist actually is. Now, I, I did actually find it kind of interesting that the word beast is used 36 times in the book of Revelation. And if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3, all the way up to 36, you come up with the number 666. I, I did it with my calculator. It's kind of weird. Uh, but at any rate, that's completely meaningless because <laughs> that's a wonderful uh, spiritual interpretation, but that isn't what it says. People in the future tribulation period will be able to use this process to know exactly who this person is. And we don't need to do that today because we're not living in the tribulation period. Is the Antichrist here in the world today? He might be. He might not be. I, I really can't answer that question. I don't know. Uh, it's, what I do know is that it's very obvious that we are moving in the direction of this one world government that is coming to the world. And it behooves us to be stayed upon the Lord and his word in order to be found faithful in these times. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've been able to look into today. I thank you that your word, although it's talking about uh, the future and maybe even perhaps the distant future, we don't know. It sure seems like it's the near future. Uh, it still applies to us today, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you went to the cross to die for our sins. I thank you that you have made eternal life and salvation so simple as to just believe in what you have done for us, to trust in what you have done for us, to forsake our own works, our own religion, our own ideas, and to just simply trust in you. I thank you and I praise you so much for that. I thank you that you have made uh, 
walking with you, a matter of just simply trusting in you and trusting in your word also, rather than a set of rigid rules and regulations that we dare not break. I thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have on a daily basis by simply just approaching you on your throne of grace. And most of all, I thank you for your love and the grace that you have shown to us. I pray that you would continue to watch over us in this week to come. Help us to live according to your word and to walk closely with you in this world that is so dark and deceived. I just pray that that each one of us would be a light in it. I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.